every time I hear that, I feel like I should be like coming through the stage and having like big mechanical stuffing put on me. And this is how I would preach in my preacher suit, right? Nobody would doze off then. Um, so, my name is Peter Clausen, and uh, I'm the youth pastor here. Obviously, uh, as you could probably tell, I'm a little bit unconventional. Uh, I am going to be uh, speaking to you guys about something that I am incredibly passionate about, and that is apologetics. This is our second installment. Last week, we talked about uh, the existence of God. We just established his existence, you know, uh, that... Uh, through observable science, we can see that the universe is actually expanding, that it began to exist. Time and space began to exist. Number two, anything that begins must have a cause that brings it into being, okay? And then number three, therefore, the universe must have a cause. And we as Christians believe that that first cause the uncaused first cause would be God. If you cannot reconcile God with, with things like science, history, intellectual reason, the thing is your faith will suffer. And that's why I feel apologetics is so incredibly important. Uh, Steve Mayer says, the heart cannot exalt what the mind rejects. Today, I want to attribute that godhood to the person of Jesus Christ, okay? This is where we kind of bring it home. And uh, whether you believe in Jesus or not, whether you think he's God or not, you, you, a person cannot deny the fact that no man has shaped the world more in history than the person of Jesus Christ. Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, this is what he says. He was a, a French military and political leader who rose to prominence during the French Revolution and led several successful uh, campaigns during the Revolutionary Wars. This is a man of experience, a man of wisdom, a man of knowledge. He says this, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander... Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this very hour, millions would die for him. He said something else, too, in a different quote. He said, I search in vain history to find similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Today, we have a huge buffet of world religions which um, have a seemingly infinite amount of gods to connect them to. So the question we need to ask ourselves as reasonable people, as people of faith, is how do you know that you possess truth? How do you know that what you believe is true? 
Almost every religion is similar in some respect. Every religion thinks they're right, and it was, be, and it was founded by a, by a person with a philosophy. Jesus stands out among the rest because, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is the only person in history to claim God status. And then he backs it up with evidence. The only person to do that through signs, through miracles, and the most extraordinary one of all, the resurrection. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, for not just being a, a philosophy, for not just being a good idea, but for being God, claiming God, and showing us that you are God. And Lord, as we dig into a lot of details, a lot of um, historical uh, elements, God, we pray that through all of this stuff we're going through, that you would receive the glory, that we would just be affirmed again that, that you are not just a myth, but we would believe you in our heart. Not that we are dependent upon these proofs, but God, we pray that these proofs would, would help just um, in, inspire us to dig deeper into the gospels because you are a reality. You're not just a philosophy, not just, uh, you weren't just a prophet with a good idea, but you were God incarnate. And thank you so much for showing us the love of a father as, as being God. In your name we pray, amen. There's a story of this, uh, a Texan, uh, a farmer from Texas. He decides that uh, he's gonna take a little break from farming. So he decides to fly to India. And so while in India, he's driving through the countryside and he's looking at how other farmers farm. And he's uh, analyzing it and comparing it. And he was kind of astonished at how small the farmland was. And so he pulls over and decides to talk to one of the farmers. So he gets out in his uh, shiny cowboy boots and walks on over with his uh, jeans and starts to talk to uh, one of the farmers. And then he asks one of the farmers, he's like, uh, so uh, how big's your property? And uh, the, the small, humble man just says, uh, do, do you see that, that pole over there that's about 55 yards that way? And he says, yep. Okay, now, now do, you, do you see that pole right over there that's about, uh, about 80 yards that way? And um, the Texan said, sure do. And then, and then uh, he said, between those two poles, that's, that's my farmland. And so then the... Um, the Texan decided to brag a little bit, rubbed his big, fat, shiny belt buckle and tipped his hat and said, well, if we were in Texas, we could jump into my vehicle and drive from one end to my property, farmland to the other, and it would take three hours. And the little Indian farmer raised his eyebrows and looked down and said, oh, really? I used to own a car like that too. When you're dealing with truth, details are very, very important. Uh, truth can very easily be distorted, and you have to be very careful uh, with not only where you get your information, but how you process the information. It's very vital. See, if Jesus were just all talk and no walk, if he was if he just claimed certain things that didn't back them up, then we might as well, there are no miracles, no healings, no resurrection. We might as well just take 
the idea of Jesus and lop it onto the pile of other false gods. However, I, like many other Christians, believe that Christianity is the only exclusive true religion. I know that that's not a very popular way of phrasing things, but we're going to put this claim to the test. There's an actual, verifiable, classical test to discover truth, and we're going to put this claim to that test. The test has three elements. The first one is logical consistency, which means are there any contradictions? Number two, empirical adequacy. Is there evidence to back up that claim? And the last one is experiential uh, relevance, which basically means does it work in real life, okay? Logical consistency, empirical adequacy, and experiential relevance. Does it contradict itself? Is there evidence? And does it work in real life? Now, if I was to tell you, if I were to tell you that, that I was a, a mechanic, you could take that test and apply it to that claim. You'd be okay, well, first of all, number one, does it contradict itself? Absolutely. You would be talking about anything mechanical, and I would have this dumb, clueless look on my face, and I would contribute nothing to that conversation. And when you would ask me to help you out on a car, you'd ask for a wrench, I would give you a screwdriver. You would realize it's a, it's, it's a contradictory statement. Number two, um, empirical adequacy. Is there evidence to back up that claim? Absolutely none. I mean, there would be no eyewitnesses to me working on any car successfully, and uh, there would be no eyewitness to me being in any uh, mechanical classes. There would be no certificate verifying the fact that I am mechanically inclined. Number three, this is very flattering for me, okay? So number three, um, does it work in real life? Uh, experiential adequacy, okay? No, it would not work in real life, and I'll tell you why. Because if you were to ask me to fix your spark plugs, I would probably replace your tie rods. It wouldn't work. I mean, well, that's given I would even know how to do that or even be able to locate it, okay? So it would not work in real life. So obviously, I have failed that test, okay? And you would know that that statement would be false. That's how it works. So let's see how Jesus... Uh, stands up to the test of being considered God. First one, uh, logical consistency. Are there contradictions to this statement? He talks up a big game. Let's be honest. John chapter 4, 26, he tells the lady at the well that, that he is the Messiah that she's talking about. John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father am one. John chapter 8, 58, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. These are huge, unique claims that place him right inside God's shoes. Any other religious leader was always only human. And when they died, they stayed dead. Another compelling element to the fact that Jesus was Jesus' life didn't contradict any of the many Old Testament prophecies. Did you know that there's over 300 prophecies that, that, prof, that, that talk about the coming Messiah? And a, a lot of them are vague, but there are many of them that were very specific. And we're just going to go through some of them that I find very compelling. Starting with this idea of his birthplace. Now... 
a lot of people say, well, Jesus probably just like had a checklist of all the uh, different things to fulfill, all the different prophecies and probably scheduled it. Oh, today I got to do this and today I got to do this, right? How in the world do you uh, figure out how you're going to be, where you're going to be born, right? I was about to be born in California. I don't know if you know that. I'm a little bitter about that because my parents decided last minute, hey, here's an idea. Let's go back to Leamington free health care. And so they decided to, instead of shelling out all the money, uh, giving me the Californian roots, I am now from Leamington. So, yay. Uh, anyway, so I could not decide where I was born. Wherever my mom would give birth, that's where I was born. Well, guess what? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This was prophesied in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And this was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 uh, in uh, the book of Luke chapter 2 verse 4 to 6. The Messiah would be betrayed. That's kind of an awkward conversation to have. Hey, listen, man. Um, number 8 on my list here is Judas. Look at me. Okay, you have to, this is what's going to happen. You have to do 30 pieces of silver. and yeah, That's kind of like, how in the world would you arrange that? He was betrayed. And this was hundreds of years before it even happened. Psalm 41, 9 says it. Um, Zechariah 11, 12, 13. And this was fulfilled in, in the book of Luke 22, 47 to 48. Matthew chapter 26, 14 to 16. The betrayal money would be used to buy a potter's field. Zechariah 11, 12, 13. Can you talk? I mean, this is detailed stuff. This was fulfilled in the book of Matthew, chapter 27, 9 to 10. Another one. Uh, he would be called king. Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 6, Zechariah 9, 9. And uh, the king of the Jews was inscribed on top of the cr uh, cross as Jesus was being crucified. And you can see, see this fulfilled in Matthew, chapter 27, 38. And the book of Mark, chapter 15, 27 to 28. The Messiah would be given vinegar to drink. Psalm chapter six, uh, 69, 21, and this is fulfilled in Matthew and John. Uh, they divided the garments and casted lots for them. They gambled for the pieces of clothing that Jesus had. This was prophesied in Psalm 22, 18, and this was fulfilled in Matthew 27, 35. Soldiers would pierce him in his side, which was uh, prophesied Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 and this came to pass in the book of John chapter 1934 and the only reason why that happened is because Jesus looked dead so when you're hanging on the cross it's excru it's an excruciating process of not really bleeding to death but more like asphyxiation and it's not a matter of being able to breathe in it's a matter of being able to exhale okay and in order to exhale you have to you have to push up on your bottom nails that are holding up your feet in order to release the air by standing up and then you fall back down putting all the pressure on your hands. Terrible process. And it would take days. Well, the Passover was coming and so they needed to get the guys down from the crosses. The two thieves were dead, they broke the legs. But when they came to Jesus, he already appeared to be dead. So in order to confirm death, it was a Roman custom that they would take a spear, shove it into the side, pierce the heart, and if the blood was mixed with water, then they would know that the person would be dead, the, the heart would have ruptured, okay? And if he wasn't dead, he probably would be shortly after being speared. Um, so this was fulfilled uh, as well, that he, was, uh, that he was pierced in John chapter 1934. And one of the most compelling and the more, most beautiful fulfillment of prophecies that I think is that the Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. Think about that statement. God 
would be sacrificed. God wouldn't just supply the sacrifice, that he would be, be the embodiment, the atonement for sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5 to 12 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was on him by his wounds. We are healed. We all like sheep have been led astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and, and the Lord has placed on him the iniquities of us all. What a beautiful passage. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the scene and fulfilled in Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 to 8 says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for, the righteous, for a, a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Jesus died for us. Now, we could keep going all day with this, but I'm just going to cap, cap it at that. Jesus fulfilled each and every one of the prophecies that were speaking of the coming Messiah. Jesus claimed to be God without contradiction in teaching and lifestyle. Number two, is there evidence to back up this claim? Is there empirical adequacy for this claim? Now, I, I don't want to just—I don't want to just build the case that uh, putting Jesus on the map in history. I want to build the case that Jesus actually owns the map; that he, in fact, is God. Now, Jesus did many signs, he did many miracles, did many healings, but the greatest and the pinnacle of 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 all the miracles that he did is the resurrection. So. I want to focus a lot of the evidence, and I want to surround it with the, um, I want it to point towards the resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 14, Paul says this, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Without the resurrection, people, we got nothing. That was the seal. That was the determining factor of how we view God. You know, a lot of people can do works and, and arguably like, yeah, like, like raising Lazarus, some of those things, like only God can do some of those things. But this would be like irrefutable evidence that he, in fact, because only God could do something like that. Because according to scripture, Jesus was tortured and then he was crucified by the Romans. The Romans were artists at death. They knew exactly uh, how to kill a person. They were... They knew the human anatomy, and they laid him dead for three whole days in a tomb with a huge stone sealing it off. And three whole days later, he was resurrected. Something clearly only God can do. To start, I want to take a look at some extra-biblical corroborating manuscripts. I want to take a look at um, historical manuscripts that exist outside of the Bible. And some of them are written by people who a lot of people would say were actually enemies of the faith. These people were not believers in Jesus. And I want to start with Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus is considered one of the greatest historians in antiquity. This is what he had to say. Listen very carefully. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if, 
it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at, at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these in ten, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Cornelius Tacitus is one of the most revered, respected Roman historians. This is what Cornelius Tacitus had to say. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, uh, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their uh, center and become popular. It exploded from Judea, and it made its way all the way to Rome. How could a person making such big claims have the ability to start a movement like that? It's important to note here that much of the, the New Testament was written down during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. This is a huge fact, and I'm going to touch, us, touch on this a little bit more next week when I talk about the reliability of scriptures. But listen to what Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. He says, after that, meaning the resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they passed away. Paul is saying here that don't just take my word for it. These people are still alive. Go talk with them. They can verify these facts. Something else to keep in mind, when the Bible says 500 men, they are only counting men. They're actually, uh, the way they used to write, they excluded women and children. So in reality, when they say 500 men, we can easily be talking 1,500 to 2,000 people. Process that for a second. A man executed by the world's most effective killing machine, dead for three days, appears to 1,500 to 2,000 people for 40 days. Yeah, that would constitute an uprising that would reach Rome just in time, and then from Rome to England, and from England everywhere else. Now, these are the leading historians, and this is what they have to say about the resurrection. Dr. Paul L. Mazur, he is a, um, uh, a Meyer, sorry, he's a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan, and this is what he has to say. He says, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is indeed justifiable according to the canons of historical research to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. And no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources, epigraphy, and archaeology that would disprove 
that statement. This is not some 40-year-old guy starting a YouTube channel in his parents' basement making crazy claims by other bloggers. This is a professor. This guy knows what he's talking about, okay? And he has met with the vast majority of other professors in history and archaeology who believe in the exact same thing. Thomas Arnold, a very well-respected British educator and historian, this is what he has to say. Listen to this. Thousands and tens of thousands have gone through the evidence which attests the resurrection of Christ, piece by piece, as careful as ever, a judge summed up on, on the most important case. I have myself done it many times over, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I have been used for many years to study the history of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fitter evidence and, and every kind. Thomas Arnold. I want to introduce to you guys another man that I found very intriguing. His name is Sir Lionel LeCou. Sir Lionel LeCou is the most successful defense attorney in the world. He is actually a Guinness Book uh, World uh, Record holder for the uh, most successful uh, trials, uh, most successful lawyer. Uh, he succeeded in getting a whopping 200 uh, his 245th successive murder charge acquittal by January 1st, 1985. Nobody in the world has come close to re replicating 245 murder trials in a row, either one before jury, jury or an appeal. In order to do this, Lionel must have had tremendous analytical skills. During his own spiritual journey, LeCou turned his expertise, all of his, all of his training, everything, all of his wisdom to the question of whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ fits the test of legal evidence. And here's the conclusion he ultimately reached. I quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Wow, just unbelievable. Now, the conclusion to our truth test ends with this question. Does it work in real life? Does it work in real life? You know, what truly separates Jesus from the rest of the beliefs here on earth is that the, every other belief on earth can only diagnose and attempt to treat sin. Jesus Christ gave a cure for it. You see, sin transcends works. You can never work enough to outweigh sin. Ask any other religion, how do you know that you're forgiven, you'll go to heaven? A Muslim will say, if it is the will of Allah, you know, if, um, uh, if my, who, who really truly knows? There's no certainty. Your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds on the day of judgment. Any pantheistic belief out there, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Jainism, it's all revolved around karma. Uh, your bad deeds will be met with other bad deeds met onto you, and, and you have to outweigh those and, and die, be reincarnated, and, and do more good than bad, and eventually be reincarnated enough that you'll 
you'll be God or you'll be enlightened. You know, and all of it is revolved around works. Jesus pops onto the scene and says, actually, there's no way you could ever achieve that equilibrium. You can never outweigh sin. And so he offers grace, his atoning sacrifice. His grace is the dividing factor. He liberally and, he, and freely gives it to all. In Romans chapter 6, 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John chapter 11, 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That is what separates Jesus most of all. I want to tell you about a place in Louisiana. There's a state prison called Angola. In this prison, there are 6,100 of the world's most dangerous men. This was the place where no one under, serving under 50 years would be allowed here. This place was only reserved for rapists, murderers, and armed robbers. They would lock them up this was, and throw away the key. Most dangerous prison in the U.S. Until one day, Bro came, a Christian, took over as the warden. And he decided to do something different. He helped each inmate discover value and purpose in life. And he did this by introducing grace through Jesus Christ. That each and every person has intrinsic value placed on them. Whether they're in prison or out of prison. It doesn't change the value of a person. He incorporated Christian education. When the government cut education across the board, he ended up talking to a seminary that was crazy enough to go within the walls of this prison and start teaching seminary courses. What happened was revolutionary. The men within these prisons became missionaries to their own prisoners. True, true story. Prayer services started breaking out in the yard, the dormitories, in the workplaces. Praise and worship nights broke out. They started forming worship teams. They started forming choirs. The culture of this prison was completely changed. Completely changed. How does something like this happen? What else could do this? Going back to point number three, does Christianity work in real life? Absolutely. And you don't need to look like look at Angola prison to know this. You just need to look across the aisle at other Christians in this room and see the transform, transforming power Jesus has in our lives. See the hope that he's given us. That's what separates Christianity from any other religion. It's not about doing the works. It's about accepting his love and grace that separates him from, the, from all of the other gods that exist in this world. Jesus Christ is the only one that can give us the worldview that coherently allows us to answer the four of the most powerful questions a human person, a human being could ever ask themselves. That deals with their uh, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Jesus answers all of those with flying colors. Jesus has the ability to transform a prison. He has the ability to transform countries, and he has the ability to transform you. And if you're sitting here this morning, and you haven't, you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as, as Lord, 
Maybe you've been struggling with some of these points and it's been weighing heavily on your heart. You haven't been able to exalt in, in your heart because your mind has been rejecting for so many years. I want to invite you this morning to worship God and give your life to him.